0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Suleiman Murad for a conversation about the Seljuk Empire's previous hegemony in the Mediterranean Basin. Dr. Murad is Professor of Religion at Smith College, based in the U.S., He teaches courses on Islamic history, law, and religion. He has written many publications over his career, including authoring the book, The Mosaic of Islam, which was published by Verso. And he is co-editor and co-translator of the forthcoming book, Muslim Sources of the Crusader Period, which will be published by Hackett Publishing Company and is scheduled for release in September 2021. And Dr. Murad joins us today from the U.S., Welcome to the show, Suleiman.
1: Thank you so much, Andrew, for having me.
0: So, to g- start the conversation, Suleiman, and create sufficient context and background for the dialogue we're about to have, what was the Seljuk Empire?
1: The Seljuk Empire is a name that we give uh, to a, a group of uh, military uh, Turkic uh, tribes. Uh, that started the invasion of the Eastern Muslim world uh, in the early 11th century. Uh, and they were man- they managed to occupy Baghdad in 1055, uh, ending the rule of a Shiite dynasty that uh, uh, controlled Baghdad and Iraq and Western Iran. Uh, and then they spread after that uh, into what is today Turkey, uh, Syria, Syria, uh, Coastal Eastern Mediterranean, uh, and at one point also posed initial threat for Egypt, uh, and one of the vessel states managed to uh, wrestle Egypt away from also another Shia dynasty. Uh, so in the course of the 11th century, the Seljuks who came from Central Asia all the way to uh, controlled the, uh, the uh, most of Western Asia.
0: What's known about the etymology of the word Seljuk?
1: Uh, the, the, the word itself supposedly is the name of a person, the ancestor of this uh, uh, tribal uh, group or the leaders of the tribal groups uh, who came to lead uh, this uh, uh, conquest, if one were to call it, uh, as such. Um, the significance of that person is that uh, he converted to Islam uh, and started uh, moving uh in some kind of military formation uh, out of uh, Central Asia. And it was his grandson uh, that uh, picked up the uh, movement, uh, unified uh, many Turkic uh, tribes under his uh, rule, and unleashed uh, this effective uh, campaign of conquest. Uh, so Seljuk is essentially the ancestor of this specific family that led the Seljuk Empire.
0: Okay. So to get um, uh, all of the background type questions out of the way, um, Suleiman, I, I think you mentioned the term Turkic and, and you associated that term to the Seljuk Empire. So can you speak more about um, what the term uh, Turkic means in this context?
1: The Turkic uh, term essentially refers to the uh, Turks, who used to inhabit the steppe of Central Asia for the most part. Uh, And that uh, makes up a large confederation of uh, tribes. Uh, They are largely related. We call them Turkic because they speak essentially uh, similar uh, uh, family language, uh, the Turkic languages. Uh, But otherwise, uh, they are fragmented into different uh, subgroups. Um, and they have been active militarily in Central Asia in particular for a long, long period of time before the coming of Islam. Uh, and at one point they were, uh, they they didn't start the civilization as such, but they were known for the shamanic kind of religious practice, which is similar to the Mongols. Um, scholars sometimes uh, uh, create certain similarity between the Turkic, groups and the mongols in terms of family language and in terms of culture and religious practice they were all inhabiting the same kind of uh, asian steppes southern siberia central asia uh, what is today northern china etc and and therefore they occupied what we call the central part that connects uh, east asia to west asia uh, and uh, therefore they played their role in Uh, facilitation or otherwise of what we call the Silk Road. So the Silk Road had to go through that one way or another and that's why the Turkic peoples came to play important roles because they occupied that central place.
0: Okay so scholars when looking back at the Seljuk Empire also consider those people um, Turkic people.
1: Yeah, they called those people Turkic people, and the Seljuks was a family of that Turkic
0: people. Okay, I I understand. Okay. Can you speak more? And you mentioned a a, a few items um, in one of your previous responses about the environment, um, I guess, geopolitically in, in the Eastern Mediterranean around this period of time. So when the The Seljuk empire was expanding. Can you speak about what um, the geopolitical environment would have been like in the eastern Mediterranean, kind of looking at that um, Anatolian Peninsula through the Levant to Egypt area?
1: The Seljuks, when they started their uh, march westwards, there were lots of political instabilities. Uh, throughout uh, what we call the Eastern Muslim world, all the way up to the Eastern Mediterranean. Eastern Muslim world usually is a reference to the Muslim world from Iraq eastward, Iraq, Iran, Central Asia, what is today Afghanistan and and what's today Pakistan. Uh, So there has been a lot of political instabilities because uh, the the effective rulers were ruling uh, some of the Eastern Muslim empire, and especially in Afghanistan, uh, started more and more dependent, becoming dependent on these Turkic peoples, and the Turkic peoples confederations in Central Asia became more demanding of uh, uh, of things, uh, uh, realizing essentially that they were the backbone of lots of states that existed, uh, and that's probably uh, what is the uh, creativity of the Seljuks: is why do we need to lend our service to other monarchs and keep them in power? We can take affairs into our hands. Uh, and therefore they when they got together around the ten thirties, ten forties, the other dynasty that used to rule the Muslim world, especially in Iraq and Western Iran, uh, became weaker and weaker. And that created a vacuum. That vacuum also impacted the situation in the eastern Mediterranean, in the country that we call today israel palestine jordan syria lebanon uh, parts of turkey and even definitely egypt uh, egypt at that time was ruled by a shia dynasty but the shia dynasty was growing weaker and weaker uh, it's called the father dynasty um, and uh, the byzantines were not on the apogee of their power obviously uh, and they were also dependent on other recruits in order to help them fight the wars etc uh, larger syria uh, this greater geography that we call Greater Syria uh, was also witnessing uh, some kind of a fragmentation. Uh, in the north, there were, uh, most of Syria at that time was inhabited by uh, a lot of Shiites, especially in the countryside. Uh, also, the majority of the nation was still Christian to a large extent, and definitely that also applies to the countryside. Uh, most the cities were... Uh, uh, either Christian or majority Muslim Shiites, uh, except for uh, Damascus, which was a, the largest Sunni hub uh, in the entirety of uh, uh, Syria. So you have a lot of sectarian divisions, uh, and those sectarian divisions impacted the powers uh, that rule uh, those uh, areas, uh, so much so that actually there wasn't effective uh, leader who controlled all of it. It was largely big cities, Aleppo, Damascus, uh, uh, Jerusalem, you might call it, uh, who each, each city had control over a large landscape around it. But there wasn't a powerful person who controlled all of it. Uh, the Fatimids were not always effective in extending their power throughout, from Egypt throughout Syria. Uh, sometimes they were able to occupy Damascus and put it uh, under their control, but other times They were weak and they had to wrestle against some kinds of revolts by other Shiite groups uh, against them. So essentially, uh, this kind of uh, 11th century that uh, saw the coming of the Seljuks was a very, very troubling period, Uh, troubling in terms of instability and uh, lack of central authority that uh, controlled the area.
0: In the eastern area, so this area that we're speaking about in the Mediterranean, in the mediterranean um how far is south i suppose in this case would the byzantine empire's territory holdings uh, go kind of from that constantinople but then working south how 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 far south would that would those holdings go
1: you, you know obviously the byzantine empire at one time before the coming of islam controlled most of the uh, the mediterranean world if not all of it um And then it started to lose territory, it lost uh, uh, the eastern and southern Mediterranean to the Muslims, uh, and it lost most of the northwestern Mediterranean to European uh, warlords. Uh, So obviously it shrank a lot. In the ninth century, there was a kind of resurgence of Byzantine power, uh, ninth and tenth century, that the Muslims actually, and they came back, they occupied most of what is today Anatolia, and they came back and occupied even Antioch. Uh, part, uh, they were present in the um, on the eastern coast. Um, but then uh, in the 11th century, as a prelude of what you call the Seljuk invasions, uh, you, uh, and the Seljuk invasion is is partly like we see in similar situations. Uh, it was largely a move, population movement in one way or another. So what the, the creativity of the Seljuk is that they were able to unify this population movement and channel it toward their own objectives. A similar case after was the Mongol invasion when Genghis Khan was able to rally all the Mongol tribes under his leadership. Before that in the seventh century was the Islamic, Arabo-Islamic invasion of the Middle East when actually the rulers of the early Muslim empire were able to rally all the Arabs around them. And start this kind of invasion. And later, also around the time of the Seljuks, we have the Crusades, which effectively is when Norman and other groups in Europe started to rally together and uh, also direct that kind of group effort to a specific objective for the groups uh, involved. Uh, So before the Seljuks made their invasion of what we call Turkey and Syria, uh, there were already Turkic groups ahead of them on their own, encroaching into Byzantine territory, and that weakened a lot the Byzantine Empire. So, as, as early as the 1020s, we start seeing some Turkic people uh, coming into uh, Anatolia. The main battle, well, the Byzantines were still powerful, uh, but it was uh, seesawing, in, if one were to use that term. Uh, they were not always steady. And initially they were able to fend off the Seljuks, but then in 1071, uh, there was this major battle in the Eastern Anatolia uh, near Lake Van at a place called Manzikert uh, where the Seljuks defeated the Byzantine army. Uh, and that effectively opened up the whole of Anatolia because after that you know Manzikert is a very strategic place. Uh, It is in the middle of these mountain ranges that locked the east uh, access into Anatolia proper. So once you open that gate, there is no way you can control these Turks that are coming from everywhere. Uh, There is no strategic place that they have to cross. Uh, And from that point onward, the Byzantine Empire was never the same. Uh, It became a very weak empire, uh, rarely able uh, to defend itself effectively. and there were other factors that ultimately uh, added up into its problems and ultimately demise in uh, 1453.
0: The Battle of Manzikert, so that it's referenced in the episode, what year did that occur?
1: Uh, it happened in 1071. Okay.
0: So 11th century still. You made an allusion, I believe, to the Abbasid caliphate earlier in the conversation can you speak about what the relationship would have been between these two states during this period of time and did the seljuks what was the seljuks relationship to islam in that did they did they see themselves generally as adherents to the to the religion followers of the religion and or um i guess uh yeah and and or probably works did they see themselves as having a uh, a higher position from a religious uh perspective when it when it came to islam
1: that's a this is a, the, both of them are fascinating questions uh to start with uh, the abbasids who have been caliphs essentially since 750 and for almost a century they ruled Uh, what we call the golden age of the Islamic empire. Uh, After 850, their power started to diminish, uh, and largely, as definitely as of around 950, they became puppets, puppets to whoever ruled Iraq. Uh, And between 950 and 1055, the effective rulers of Iraq were the Buyid dynasty, They were not caliphs. They were, technically we call them sultans. That is under the spiritual leadership of a caliph, but they were actually the people in power. The caliphs were more of a puppet. The Buyids needed them in order to give them legitimacy and in return the Buyids gave the Abbasid protection. Uh, But again, the Buyids in Arabic, Al-Buwayhiyun were Shiites and the Abbasid caliph was Sunni the Abbasid Caliphate ultimately came to sponsor Sunni Islam. Um, so there was this kind of a, a problem for the Abbasid that didn't like being essentially bossed around by the Shianic dynasty. Uh, so when the Seljuks came on the scene, the Abbasids were extremely happy that finally there is a Sunni power who is going to help them be established golden established. But the Seljuks Sel- had different designs. They didn't necessarily agree. So they made the Abbasid Caliphs puppets like the Buyids, except now it is a Sunni Sultanate that made them uh, puppets instead of shih But the other part of your question is spot on, is fascinating because really often we undervalue the transformative impact of the Seljuks on definitely religion and politics, uh, to some extent culture, and uh, partly also in economics. But religion and politics are definitely the most important contributions. Religion is because the Sanchuks were Sunnis, but they were not your normal Sunnis. They were espoused to, uh, uh, to a specific vision of Sunnism that because they were Turkic groups, they came from parts where the specific form of Sunni Islam Uh, followed what we call the Hanafi school and the Hanafi or the Hanafi branch of Islamic law. Uh, This is one of branches of Islamic law. That is, you live Islam according to an orthopraxy. And what I mean by this is the main important thing that you consider Islam to be is a way of living, more so than a theology. Here the contrast is between Largely and loosely, here, I'm saying, between for instance Judaism, where the emphasis is how you live as a person, and therefore the ritual is very important, the procedures are very important, uh, the, what you do in your life is very important, versus Christianity, where the most important thing is about faith in Christ. If you don't believe in Christ, there is no way you can be. A so, and here about the nature of Christ, etc. So, when you follow uh, a branch of law, essentially you are saying that the most important thing in Islam is orthopraxy. That is the way you live, not the way you believe. Whereas the Shiites emphasize belief as the most central part of Islam. What you believe in is more important than anything else. You can compromise everything else at the expense of your belief. So you put where the most emphasis goes. So the Seljuq came as Hanafis that is following that. Their perception of Islam is about practice. And that's why I said orthopraxy. Therefore, the importance is to know what are the proper and correct practices. Orthodoxy is about proper belief. So they came and they championed that vision. But it's not simply that they were interested to promote it. They were vehement in promoting that kind of vision. And in a way that one, they were very much anti shiites and they started what you call a process of persecution of Shiites and elimination of Shiites. They started a massive sponsorship of religious schools, what we call colleges. They were the actual actually propagator of the Muslim colleges uh, starting in the 11th and 12th century. Uh, the most important model that they established called the Nizamiya. It's after Nizam al-Mulk, which was, who was a very important prime minister for the Seljuks. Essentially, he established uh, the, the real power of that empire, and all of this uh, he did uh, in the course of the 11th century. Uh, and he hired people, uh, very heavyweight people, to uh, teach in those colleges. Uh, and thus, those colleges. One of their also contribution is that the Seljuks uh, pushed these colleges to also sponsor uh, another form of very popular Islam, and that is Sufism. Uh, in English, we translated as mysticism. Uh, Sufism was uh, on the periphery of what we call correct Islamic practice. Uh, it was still struggling to establish itself as a correct struggle uh, a correct practice especially among sunnis and in the course of the 10th and 11th century the seljuks uh, realized that they can use the power of sufism because it has tremendous currency among the population and made it an official uh movement uh, in the sense that one uh, uh, not only give it but also officializing it as a proper Islamic practice. So they hired scholars essentially to write about why Sufism conforms with the main tenets of Islam. Why it is uh, essentially takes its teachings from the Quran. It follows the clear teachings of the Prophet Muhammad and all of the early Muslim uh, scholars. So why essentially Sufism is a legitimate religion practiced largely that it was scholars who did this, but those scholars were largely at the payroll of the Seljuks. The Seljuks wanted to use Sufism because it could balance the power of Shia missionaries that were very active in what is today Iraq and Iran. Um, and in order to balance that, they want very much like if you need your own lunatic in order to balance your enemy's lunatic. If, if one were to use that kind of, uh, so you need your missionaries in order to balance those kind of Shia missionaries that are coming largely out of Egypt, uh, from this Fatimid dynasty that controlled Egypt. Uh, and the only effective way that the subjects felt they can use that to endear themselves to the population, and use that kind of power was to take Sufism on board and make it some kind of a state vehicle to achieve their own objectives. Uh, so you see here that actually, if it wasn't for all of these things, the Middle East wouldn't be the Middle East that we know. About. Sunni Islam would ha- wouldn't be the majority that controls most of the Muslim world, uh, what we see essentially since the uh, the time of the Seljuks and definitely today. Uh, the Muslim world would be completely different and the history of the, the Mediterranean and probably the world would be different. Uh, I can go into political uh, aspects, but I want to give you uh,
0: Chance to reflect on anything. thank you Suleiman it's uh, it was very expanded and it's 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 fascinating um, if people so in looking at a map uh, in the eastern Mediterranean around this period of time and bringing back uh, in this the the Abbasid caliphate in that relationship too was was the Seljuks territorial holdings in this period of time was it opaque in that You know, you could you could see from one spot all the way to another spot um, over quite a lot of territory that this was their territory. Or was it more of a mosaic in that uh, there is like patches of spots that they that they held? You know what I'm getting at? It was it more of a because it's it's interesting when you talk about historical topics, because in modern terms, when we think countries and states and things, we often think about just one, you know, l- large or small uh, uh, straight mass of land, <laughs> right? Uh, but when you get into some of these topics, you realize really quickly it's it's not clear cut like that. So can you can you describe, and, and why I mentioned the, the Abbasid, um, if you could bring that in your response, if it's known as well as what holdings did they have by this point of time um, in the Eastern Mediterranean as well?
1: Uh, but by this time, the Abbasids had no control uh, uh, in any effective way except as a very nominal caliph. Uh, so, some Sunni rulers might uh, praise the Abbasids, might uh, in, on the Friday prayer uh, service, the name of the Abbasid caliph might, might be mentioned, but effectively, they, they were nothing. Uh, uh, the Seljuks, uh, unlike earlier uh, dynasties, uh, Try to avoid enforcing what we call centrality and uh, complete control by the Seljuk Sultan over all parts of its domain. Uh, they, so essentially, they avoid the trap that the Umayyads before and the Abbasids in the Golden Age uh, uh, tried to pursue, which is a central government that controls all its parts very effectively. Uh, they, uh, there's also an added thing, the fact of the actual makeup of the Seljuk Empire, uh, mainly of different confederation of Turkey groups, um, and they want them to please all of, that, of those groups uh, and also to please the different uh, princes that belong to the Seljuk royal family, if one were to say. That. Um, so essentially they realized that the best way to control this kind of empire is is to give uh parts of it as uh, as what you call passive so the cousin of the sultan Sajuk sultan will control uh, uh damascus uh, a nephew will control parts of central asia so yeah it's not one uh, piece of land controlled by one sultan it was uh largely iran and parts of iraq that were effectively ruled by the sultan but then all other parts were given uh, as in arabic we call which uh, which is a new uh, system that was introduced uh, and uh, where someone who is very related to this confederation is put in charge of an area in return of paying a large sum of money uh, to the central government. And then they ca- they collect the taxes, they collect everything. Uh, and, and every year they owe that uh, central government a huge sum of money. Uh, and also in case there's warfare, uh, they are supposed to bring uh, troops uh, and join the Sultan in, in a given battle. So they have certain duties to the central government. Otherwise they run the affair of the uh, area in some kind of semi-independent way in one way or another. Um, and that's essentially what was the case in the Eastern Mediterranean, in the geography that we call Greater Syria, where um, uh, the same fragmentation that existed before existed now, except now uh, most of it of, or all of it is uh, is divided among Seljuk warlords uh, instead of different local groups that uh, occupied
0: people that were living in these territories that the seljuks eventually gained hegemony over what was their presuming there's not conflict i'm, I'm sure there's times when there's conflict but in the cases when the, the the people are staying and they want to continue their lives they're not they're not they're not leaving and and they're not they're not um, necessarily fighting. What what was the response, um, the Seljuk Empire's response uh, to these these people? You brought up taxes, so that might be part of your response. But also from a religious perspective. So you mentioned there's there would have been Jewish people um, in in certain parts. There would have been Christians in certain parts. So what can you? So I'm asking the question fairly broadly. Um, what was their policy response to? Um, subjects, uh, citizens. However, you you, you 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 know you want to create a, the definitions um, for for this question. Um, what was their policy in response to these people in these lands?
1: Um, that that's another factor that is political, cultural, sociolog- sociological as well. Um, and that is the central empire, uh, Central empire uh, perpetrated some kind, not complete, but some kind of population change in the Eastern Mediterranean. East. Um, sometimes we might exaggerate it, but uh, I think uh, it's good to make the point and in realizing that uh, uh, what happened is you have these Turkic groups that are coming from Central Asia and they are marching. Uh, as they march. some of them settled, say Iran, in Iraq, but still others. So you're talking about tenth of thousands that ended up in what is today Turkey and what is the Istanbul. On their way, obviously, they came to intermix and intermarry with local populations. Uh, And often the local populations adopted uh, some traits of that kind of Seljuk way of life. So in in modern Turkey, for instance, um, the the, the, uh, majority of the population are not actually Turkic from Central Asia, although large numbers came and intermixed with that. But there was a kind of persecution that happened. For instance, uh, the Shiites, this is when they were started to be forced either to convert or leave. Uh, uh, And the few that remained, remained because they could uh, coalesce in around certain cities or in isolated places uh, way outside uh, the control of the Seljit. In large cities, It's their numbers that protected them Uh, in rural parts. They needed to be in very isolated places like mountain ranges. And hence why to this day, the large number of Shiites that remain in the eastern Mediterranean are along, uh, say, in Lebanon, which is a mountainous uh, or in western northwestern Syria, which also is very mountainous. But otherwise, in Egypt, for instance, uh, in, in Palestine, uh, in uh, eastern Syria, uh, pretty much there are no Shiites, uh, and that is because of the politics that the uh, uh, Seljuks instigated. Uh, uh, there was uh, there were large numbers of uh, Christians, obviously, in Iraq, uh, Syria, etc., and through the similar process of sometimes uh, not religious persecution per se, but what you could call either political persecution or uh, political luring uh, where lots of Christian dignitaries were lured into converting to Sunni Islam, uh, uh, essentially politely pressured by the subjects into converting to to Sunni Islam. And that usually brings on board sometimes entire areas uh, that start converting. Uh, largely, Largely speaking, the Eastern Mediterranean In terms of absolute population, up till the coming of the Seljuks was predominantly Christian. With the coming of the Seljuks, in less than a century, the majority of the population became Muslim. Within a span of two centuries, the Christians started to become a minority. So here you connect the dots. The Seljuks caused. What you would call this kind of again, it was rarely done as part of official religious persecution, but what happened is that when your infrastructure as a religious community are undermined, then it's hard to remain within the contour of that religious tradition that you adhere to, uh, and therefore you find it more um, uh, uh, more advantageous for you personally or as a community to convert, and that happens, for instance, in Europe when uh, 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 non-christian groups started to adopt christianities in the 7th 8th 9th century and onward Um, or even uh, when uh, um, uh, uh, north america or south america was conquered and the native people start adopting christianity Uh, or when immigrants sometimes move from one place to another and adopt its practices and they become completely absorbed in the new new this often it's not necessarily forced on them in as much as the circumstances make it almost necessary that you need to do this. Uh, And again, it was all because of the Seljuk uh, state, Seljuk Empire, that these dynamics were put in place uh, that led to the Middle East and the Eastern Mediterranean be what it is today.
0: If I recall, the Umayyad Caliphate had they they had a um, a policy where um, so it, either no taxes or low taxes, some, something like that. It might be a little bit off, but I but it's either no or low low taxes if someone was Muslim in their in their state, and then higher taxes if someone was let's say Christian. And it seemed at a high level, this this created somewhat somewhat of a of a tolerance in that um, there, someone could remain christian in the state but they would pay t- more taxes um so they kind of they you know they knew what they were getting into with that but then it seemed like at one point in time there's this issue that arises where a lot of people are converting and then there there's not as much taxes coming into the central in, in, in into the government so when looking at the seljuk empire was it a little bit different the tolerance level in that Th- their interest really was to have people in their state worship their type of Islam.
1: You know, obviously, uh, this is part of the answer is that the change in taxation uh, precipitated a lot of that kind of pressures. Uh, uh, so instead of forcing people to, uh, to adopt islam by becoming muslim there is, uh, it's not that you don't pay tax it's a different kind of tax that you pay uh, and you only pay that tax which we call an arabic zakat uh, or alms uh, if you have money that is if you largely uh, villagers farmers don't have that much money and therefore they tend to be exempt um, so when the soldiers came and established this kind of iqba that is this feudal the lordship, so to speak, that is, you give an area to someone in return for the payment, then that person has to raise the money that they paid to the state. Um, and uh, if the population is Christian and definitely Shiites, uh, they can be very harsh on them and force them to pay uh, for those money that you upfront the state. Uh, if you convert to Sunni Islam, then it becomes less. Able that person who controls the area to impose on you uh, this kind of harsh taxation. So yes, the Seljuks by the way raised a lot of taxations uh, unlike the Umayyad, uh, all kinds of taxation but they were not these taxation they were not always on people. there was always if you are Christian in particular, that is if you are not Muslim in particular, you have to pay the jizya, which is a kind of tax on you pay it per person. Uh, rather than the alms that you pay if you are a Muslim, obviously, and if you have made a profit on your, uh, your things. Uh, you, you have generated tremendous profit. But if you are barely surviving, uh, you are exempt. And the, the point of alms in Islam is that the people who make money, you take some of that as taxation and you give it to the Muslim pool. That's how it works. Uh, it doesn't work. You don't give it to Christians, because they are not entitled for that. Uh, and if you are a Christian living under the Muslim empire, you have to pay that kind of regime. The Umayyads had different arrangements because there were lots of Arab tribes who were exempt from that kind of regime. So really, the, uh, but also in the Umayyad period, uh, agriculture was uh, uh, still presenting the main source of income uh, uh, that fueled the state. Essentially, the the treasury of the state. Um, With the Seljuks, we see a kind of resurgence of agriculture because the period before the Seljuks, there was some kind of undermining of agriculture because of varieties of reasons. Um, So, there is a uh, return of agriculture, but most importantly, what the Seljuks were able to do was to reconnect West Asia to East Asia and open up trade. And that generated a lot of revenues for the uh, for their states as well. So lots of the taxation were actually on commodities rather than on people directly, and that's different from what happened later on uh, with, with the Ottomans when they start to impose more and more taxation on individuals. Uh, so here you, you are absolutely right. Uh, lots of communities, especially in the muslim communities, felt it's much advantageous for them to avoid sometimes punitive taxations, uh, by converting
0: to Islam. So, is there any evidence, Suleiman, of, because you mentioned trade, um, is there any evidence of trade occurring in this period with the Seljuks, um, with, with, with people within the state, um, with the, the Byzantine Empire, perhaps the, the Fatimid, I, Fatimid, did I say that correctly? The Fatimid Empire? Is there any uh, evidence of tr- of trade with other states um, in the in in the Eastern Mediterranean in this in this period?
1: The Seljuks, uh, one of their main achievement, uh, is uh, connecting West Asia to East Asia, and that opened up the flow of uh, trade uh, from China uh, through what often is called the Silk Road, which is not really a road as much as all of this uh, uh, energy of bringing commodities from china to west asia and, and some from west asia to, uh, to east asia uh, obviously the in west asia it's something that they produce but also things that they would bring from europe um, so that opened up uh, trade and the sanjuks as much as they were people of war they were also very savvy in terms of knowing that trade is equally important uh, and, uh, uh, oftentimes, uh, this is, uh, 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 something that we read in a traveler who came, uh, around the time when, uh, a, uh, I wouldn't properly call it a vessel of the Seljuks because by that time the Seljuk empire started to weaken, but that that's essentially the kind of dynamics that existed. Uh, so this guy, Ibn Jumayy, he was in the 1170s in the Eastern Mediterranean. And he, not, he noted that uh, the people of war are fighting and merchants are crossing between the two areas as if there is nothing and there is peace and accord between the two groups. And that's largely what was the case between the Seljuk territory and all the surrounding territories, especially with Byzantium and especially with the rest of the Mediterranean, including the Fatimids. This trade is paramount. It brings tremendous profit and has to go through irrespective of the relationship of the groups. That existed before but brought it to a different level precisely because of that ability that the Seljuks were all able to open up um, Asia, uh, inter Asia trade, but also uh, trade into the Mediterranean and from the Mediterranean to the rest of Europe and vice versa. So that ability uh, uh, created a new dynamic uh, in terms of uh, uh, providing us. Uh, was, I wouldn't call it alternative way to read history, but an alternative way to read history as a complex thing that, yes, the Seljuks did lots of war, but at the same time, the Seljuks were keenly invested in all other things, including trade, that resulted in tremendous uh, relationships that existed. Between the different components that occupied the Eastern Mediterranean, especially at the time when the Seljuks arrived in what we call Eastern Mediterranean, effectively in large numbers after 1071, after the Battle of Manzikert, in the 1090s, or the end of the 1090s, 1097, 98, 99, the Crusaders come and occupied the entire stretch of the coast. So the Seljuks became inland and the the crusaders on the coast. And the two groups fought each other, but then the two groups had to survive and work with each other. So what you end up having is throughout the 12th century, you have the two groups fighting, fighting between them, fighting among themselves. Lots of times you have a crusader uh, leader with a Seljuk leader fighting, a crusader leader and a Seljuk leader. There is tremendous trade that goes between the exchange of ideas, exchange of commodities, exchange of lots of things, exchange of influences.
0: Yeah, Dr. Nick Morton, uh, a scholar in the based in the UK, has been on the show, and we covered the Battle of Agios Sanguinis, the, the the Field of Blood. And uh, if I recall, he told that story too, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's 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 ba- a battle or a skirmish on one side of the road. And then there's uh, commercial transportation occurring on the other side of the of the road. Um, so, what uh, what happened to the to the empire? You, you you mentioned a little bit about some of the changing the changes in the the geographic demarcation. But if we work our way to more the end of of this period, what happened to the Seljuk Empire? And how did they? How do you believe that they largely influenced Uh, what was to come next? How did they largely influence history?
1: Yeah. Uh, The the, the fate of the Seljuk Empire uh, is the the fate of any empire that uh, grows uh, as a result of peculiar dynamics of its own main initial constituencies. Here I'm talking about the Turkic people. It was brought uh, to an end by uh, another Turkic warlord tribe, uh, the Khawarazmians, that emerged from the original homeland uh, where the Seljuks came. The Seljuks became accustomed to life of palace. Uh, They start to become more dependent on Turkey groups coming to help them and keep them in power. Um, That's always a classic thing is you get established in the urban centers and you forget what it takes to be warlord and to maintain an empire. And then another who has the same original uh, elements that allowed you to establish what you were able to establish can come and take it away from you. So they lost it to the Khawarazmians uh, and shortly after the Mongols came and took took, the Seljuk empire. But the thing is that what the Seljuks established remained with us, remained after and everybody essentially picked it up and and followed the textbook, so to speak. Um, First, um, uh, you have, this kind of process of signification that they start. The, the, there is no way you can undermine or underemphasize the role of the Seljuks in the signification of the Muslim, especially the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, two, in terms of one of their largest contribution is that it is the Seljuks who made Persian and Turkish as languages official Islamic languages. Before that, they were colloquial spoken by Muslim people. They were not scholarly languages. Nobody took these languages seriously. It was the Seljuks because the Seljuks they were Turkic speaking people, they spoke Turkish, or one of the Turkish languages. Uh, and they ruled mostly from what is today Iran. So a lot of their advisors w- were native speakers of Persian. So they adopted these two as their official languages and by adopting them as official languages, they become official languages of Islam. And from that point onward, essentially, Persian and Turkish replaced Arabic as the dominant languages of Islam. From that point onwards, Arabic started to lose track. It didn't happen overnight, but by the 14th century, the most important things written about Islam and Islamic thought, they were written either in Turkish or in Persian not anymore in arabic and that's thanks to the Seljuk. Um, uh, uh, and often we don't realize how how important uh, that reality uh, the, the tremendous political transformation that happened in the muslim world from that point onward the caliph the seljuks essentially uh, hammered that kind of transition that the caliph is an insignificant institution in islam you need to look at the actual effective institution and that is the sultanate so the sultan is the actual real religious and political broker of the islamic uh, polity and that happens also uh, although the first legal tract that was written on that was written Exactly around the time that the Seljuks started to rise, but it wasn't written for the Seljuks. The Seljuk came and benefited from it, and from that point onward, the caliphs were set aside, and uh, what was essentially became the real uh, political power brokers in the uh, Muslim world, pretty much everywhere, were sultans. Uh, and uh, the Ottomans later on were sultans. The Mamluks were sultans. Uh, Uh, And that's because how the belief uh, came to be reformed around the institution of the Sultanate and away from the institution of the caliphate. Effectively, the institution of Caliphate for all practical purposes died, although it stayed there symbolically, it was actually dead um, uh, in all practical purposes uh, when the Ottomans invaded Egypt in 1517. This is uh, over, but the Mongols, by removing and killing the last Abbasid Caliph, uh, actual Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad in 1258, uh, that brought conclusion to the Abbasid uh, state, the Abbasid Caliphate uh, uh, in all effective ways, uh, and uh, brought the Muslims more in realization that the Sultanate is what is uh, in the cards for for the Muslim polity rather than. The Caliphate became more of a future symbolism, some kind of nostalgia, uh, things of that type. And in this way, you could say before and after, you could say uh, the Caliphate Institution uh, that at one point ruled effectively the Muslim world and later on with the seljuks how it became essentially incidental.
0: Thank you for coming on the show today, Suleiman. You have a lot of knowledge on this topic and it was a pleasure speaking with you.
1: Thank you so much, Andrew, for having me.
0: So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Murad wrote, he's author of The Mosaic of Islam, and he's also co-editor and co-translator of the forthcoming book, Muslim Sources of the Crusader Period. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Suleiman and everybody listening, as always... Wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Bye. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.